Hi everyone, Brian here. Before I jump into today's episode, as of the time of this recording, uh, we're likely not even at the peak of the coronavirus crisis, at least here in the US where I record the show. While I think it's important to keep moving forward with our personal and business lives, I didn't feel like I could just release another episode of the show without commenting on this situation. While I know each of you are likely figuring out how you're going to adjust, uh, how you're going to steer your business through the storm, and how you're going to navigate the situation personally, I wanted to suggest to all of you that now is also the time to really serve your customers, community, and the people around you. I've been really impressed with people's generosity online in the last week, whether it's the police in the streets of Spain uh, singing, uh, or the Italians singing their anthems from the balconies around six o'clock, and uh, teams forming to create breathing masks and respirators, uh, and the technology initiatives such as uh, Hack Corona uh, and the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition, among others. I myself am trying to assist with some of these initiatives and also recently held a free Ask Me Anything webinar on Crowdcast so that people like us can stick together as we work our way through the situation. Many people around the world are thinking about the yous and thems just as much as themselves right now, which brings me to my last comment. On this show, Experiencing Data, we talk a lot about how empathy is a core element in using human-centered design to create indispensable data products. Well, these acts of giving and volunteering are quite similar. It's about putting somebody else first and asking the questions from their perspective. What's their pain? What's their need? How can our solution serve them? And how, I, how might we improve their future? So as with all of these acts of giving, design is also an act of service that is rooted in empathy. And that's something we should all be thinking about right now. My best to each of you as we work our way through this crisis and thanks for listening. If you do have a question for me about the show, uh, this situation, or if there's a way I can help, uh, feel free to email me. Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at designingforanalytics.com. And now, here's the next episode of Experiencing Data. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. And today, we're going to talk about ethics with Kenneth Bowles. Kenneth, what's happening? Hey, how's it going? Good to be did I, Now, did I get your, your name uh, correct? Let's... You did. Yeah, it's Kenneth. It's basically, it's basically the Welsh version of Kenneth, more or less. Excellent. So when people see this episode, you're going to see the name C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. It's a good Welsh name, but it's pronounced Kenneth, and I wanted to get that right, so I'm glad I did. <laughs> so uh, give people a quick overview of, of, what, of what you do today with your work. Yeah, sure. So I'm a designer by, uh, by background, but for the last maybe five years or so, I've been focusing on the ethics of design, the ethics of emerging technology, and then generally the ethics of innovation, I suppose. Um, so I wrote a book about that called Future Ethics, which came out uh, around about one year ago. And since then, I've been sort of consulting and speaking and writing and workshopping mostly around that topic. Um, still do a bit of hands-on design, particularly in the privacy space. 
and also do a bit of uh, futures and speculative designers, uh, design work as well. So that sort of plays into that space quite nicely too. Got it. What, tell me about innovation ethics. Essentially, the reason I'm choosing that framing is because innovation, I think sometimes there's a clearer relationship or there ought to be a clearer relationship between innovation and its social impacts. You know, we talk about ethical design or ethical technology, but the focus there is often on, you know, the design and the technology. Whereas I think innovation, it's possibly a bit of an easier sell that innovation is something that changes the course of the world in some cases. So it's really just a a framing um, that I think is is advantageous for certain audiences, essentially. Got it. Got it. So so about your book, you're, you have this book called Future Ethics, and I'm still reading it, and it's it's great. It's packed with there, there's so much depth in it, which I I really appreciated. I would say, if this is a fair thing, you sound a little bit ticked at the tech industry. <laughs> is that still is that a is that a fair read of kind of what you think? You're a little bit disappointed in where things are at. Or are they getting better? Is that a misread on my part? Yeah, I would say disappointed is the right framing. Okay. There are some in the tech ethics industry who are angrier than I am, <laughs> uh-huh. um, or in the tech ethics sector, rather. But I still love this field, and I still love the potential impact technology can have. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think there was a strong upside to technology, if I didn't think it could, uh, if, it, if I didn't think it couldn't uh, advance, you know, the, the, the species, I suppose. Sure, um, sure. Disappointed, certainly, maybe a bit disillusioned as well. Mm-hmm. People sometimes expect that there was a moment because I've you know I've worked in Silicon Valley and tech firms and startups and various things and people maybe sometimes assume that there was a moment when I was just overcome by you know revulsion for what I saw and it really wasn't there wasn't any one thing it was more an accumulation of decisions that I just felt I I couldn't support and then obviously since maybe the last three four five years there's been a significant change in particularly the press perspective on technology, but then also the public attitude toward the tech industry, uh, both of which have gone pretty negative. And, you know, rightly so, to be honest. I think as our power has grown, we have failed to use that power uh, responsibly. And so it's absolutely fair that we be held to account for those for those mistakes. Mm-hmm. So... So on this show, I, my my assumption is is that the audience listening uh, to experiencing data kind of splits a little bit uh, because it's it's targeted at, at people working in analytics and data science mm-hmm. and technical product management. There are probably a good number of people here who may not identify as being part of the tech industry because, say, they're you know they might be working at a I don't know an insurance company you know so they're working on the analytics and data in a non digital you know, the product is not necessarily technology. Mm. Do you feel like the same, uh, your disillusionment and, and that feeling goes towards that crowd as well, mostly doing internal, you know, B2B applications of uh, data and data products, things like this, or is it all encompassing? Yeah, yeah it, it, they, they don't get to wriggle off the hook, I'm afraid, as far as I'm uh-huh. concerned. Um, uh-huh. A lot of some of the uh, ethical harms that we have seen um, that may not be, yes, you know, it's fair, may not be part of the tech industry, but have at least involved technological decisions mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, data decisions and algorithmic or pseudo-algorithmic decisions mm-hmm. um, have still come from from that sector. And they've, uh, 
potentially, in fact, some cases had some of the largest impacts. The ethical questions around um, the misapplication or the abuse of data are, you know, strong and prominent, and actually have achieved maybe even more recognition than other forms of of, um, of harm that I that I talk about. So, uh, yeah, I would I would say my message hopefully is relevant to um, folks who even may not identify individually as you know a technologist. Mm-hmm. No, I I understand, and I. Having come from, I mean, I've worked with a lot of startups as well, and I, we have some similar background here. And, and mm. I wonder if part of part of this is also the there's a prevalence of younger aged people, younger white male dominated, at least in my experience. A lot of the startups kind of, you know, pretty homogenous looking mm-hmm. age wise, not a lot of experience, which means you don't necessarily understand their like the deeper ramifications of some of the choices that are being made and and there's still the, you know the the VC backing often puts this super aggressive you know show revenue as fast as possible at all costs and if if you're going to take risks now's the time at all costs and it's just mm-hmm. plow forward kind of thing and i felt like your book is trying to halt that like slow that down a bit and put it put it in perspective and it, it, this even just goes to regular design, right? When we talk about human-centered design for individuals, it's so easy to make decisions. When you never talk to a customer or user, it's really easy to make choices that can screw them at the, you know, at the benefit of some increasing some KPI or business metric. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> do you think that kind of homogeneity of the people working in, in, in tech maybe over the last 10 or 20 years, I'm sure it's probably diversifying now. I don't have any data about that, but that has something to do with, uh, with where we are. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a whole lot to, to unpack here mm-hmm. with respect to something you said just toward the end of that section, I'd, I'd like to just take that a little bit further even and say, mm-hmm. you know, in, in user-centered design, you can definitely make mistakes that mean that, you know, harm befalls the user if you don't consider them properly, mm-hmm. but even that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Because if we focus just on the user, then there still may be all sorts of damage that happens to people who aren't users. Right. Uh, this is something the economists will call externalities, right? Costs mm-hmm. or harms that fall on people who aren't part of the system. Passive smoking is kind of the classic example. Right. Um, and we've seen a lot of user-centered products, things like Airbnb, which are great for the user or users too. In this case, the the renter and the uh, uh, the leaser of the of the premises. And then all the harms and all the costs fall on the local communities rather than those people. Mm-hmm. But as to whether it's to do with homogeneity, certainly doesn't help. You're absolutely right, of course, that the tech industry still skews uh, white, it still skews male, it still skews young, at least uh, certainly in um, the US and Western Europe, that's the case. And as far as I'm concerned, diversity, although it's a political issue to an extent, you know, I make no apologies for saying it matters for ethics because... I have seen many times uh, team diversity act as an ethical early warning system. Essentially, you have people who firmly believe that, well, this solution they're about to put out into the world is, if not flawless, pretty damn close. <laughs> Lots of times I've seen in you know, critique sessions or whatever it might be, someone who's dissimilar to that group in some way say, well, hang on, <laughs> you do realize, right, that for folks from my communities or the, you know, the people that I'm closest to, we would never use this or we would use it in a completely different way or even worse, this system could be used against us mm-hmm. by harassers, by abusers, by the state, by, you know, by whoever. And the number of times I've seen that happen and the rest of the folks in the room go, oh, oh, actually we had no idea. <laughs> um, 
and we've still got so far to go on diversity and i'm 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 hopeful that you know there are some small small green shoots i really hope that trend continues because i think it will uh, it can only serve to make our ethical challenges that little bit easier so we're, we kind of jumped into some of the tactical things and i i, I want to get into this because I, I what i was hoping to really today is to get some of your your wisdom and experience with this and give people some things they can walk away with today, uh, uh, particularly thinking about someone who's probably managing a data science or analytics team, or again, a technical product manager. Mm. You talked about this front page news test, which as I read through all the different kind of uh, schools of ethics that are there and, and kind of understanding that this isn't a checklist kind of mentality, but that that front page news test was a really it stuck out to me as something that's easy to as a starting point. And so tell us about the front page news test as a mm-hmm. way to kind of sure. check yourself on, on where you are. If you wanted to get like, let's assume the users here, everyone's trying to, to do good work. They're not trying to do ethically wrong things. It's mm-hmm. more of an ignorance and lack of experience. And I don't know what I don't know situation. Tell me about this, this method. Mm, sure. So this is one of four ethical tests that I put forward which are derived from kind of the main three pillars of modern ethics, which I, you know, I, I shan't go into in detail here. But this last test um, essentially asked, would you be happy for whatever it is you're about to do to be front page news? You know, if someone saw this and, and published it tomorrow, would you reflect on that with pride? Would you buy copies of the newspaper for all your friends? And also what would people infer about your, your values, your virtues, your character, from you having taken that decision. So this is why it's about what's called virtue ethics. It's all about what is the moral character that we try to aspire to as individuals, and then are we actually taking decisions that show that, that actually evidence that? Um, A similar uh, angle might be, would you be happy for that decision to be sent as a push notification to all your friends and family? And I'm reminded sometimes of, I think it was the design of, I don't know if it was the first or the second Apple Mac. Uh, I think it may have been the second. But the team was so proud of that device, they actually um, molded all of their signatures into the plastic of the machine, but they put them on the inside. Now, partly that's probably an aesthetic choice, but also I think that's kind of a bold, um, almost an ethical choice, because the only time you're going to be delving into the inside of a computer of that era is usually when something's gone wrong. But they were still so proud in what they'd done. They said, we are the people responsible for this product, for the decisions that have gone into the product. You know, there's sort of undercurrent being, if you've got a problem, take it up with us, right? You know, we're, we're, we're happy to own it. And so it's really the same thing. Would you really be happy to own that decision? So there's so many ethical corners that get cut because there's no light shone on them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one, oh, I can get away with this one. No one's really looking. Um, yeah, go on, we'll sneak that one through, whatever it may be. So it's just a, a, a tool, I suppose, to help us reflect whether that's really the most healthy ethical approach. Mm-hmm. So if this is one of the four, could you give us a summary of the other three? Yeah, sure. So uh, sort of in the order that I present them in, in, in my book, the first two are actually based off, and this is about as theoretical as I'm going to get, don't worry, but they're based off uh, Immanuel Kant's um, work back in the, I guess it would be the 17, late 1700s, I think. And uh, the first one is uh, more or less, what would, uh, what would happen if everyone did what I'm about to do? It's sort of similar to the, the, that virtue ethics test, but it's really asking us to universalize our thinking, to say if this was a common rule of behavior, 
would that world be a better place or a worse place? Related to that is another Kantian idea, which is, am I treating people as means or as ends? So to unpack that, that means essentially, am I treating people fairly with uh, their own goals as you know important? Uh, or am I really just using them as means for me to achieve whatever I want to get done in the world? And I think I see this quite a lot in companies that are uh, data-driven, that rely heavily on experimentation, A-B tests, multivariate tests. A lot of the time in those organizations at scale, people do become means to an end. Uh, companies start talking about not individual users, but as masses of users. And so the conversation shifts to what behavior can I try to manipulate in my users for me to hit my OKRs for the quarter? So that's a question I like to ask in those situations. And then the third test of the, of the four, and then the last one I haven't mentioned, is um, the cornerstone of what's known as utilitarian philosophy or utilitarianism. And it's essentially, am I maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people? And this is a, a fairly sort of well-established idea. Um, and then by extension, am I minimizing harm or pain or suffering? So there's almost a sort of calculus that um, the proponents of that way of thinking uh, suggest. You could almost plug in happiness values. Uh, and in fact, there are some people looking at what they call scientific morality and attempt to do precisely that. No, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of taking it to that level. But uh, essentially, those are, those are four maybe slightly reductive, uh, but at least reduced ethical entry points, I suppose, to those different ways of, of, of uh, moral thinking. So that's super helpful. I'm glad you summarized those. And my next follow-up to this is, you know, thinking about someone who's probably rather analytically minded I could see someone thinking about, for example, am I maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people? Well, that's a scale, right? Like if, you know, if it was like a lever and you can turn it to the right, all the dial to the right, or you can turn it all the way to the left. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, in the, in the game of business where these things are probably not binary, is this about, is this about our awareness and moving the dial more towards the directions these need to be ethically as opposed to it's binary and it's like you're either maximizing it or you're not and it's not really about these gray areas because that's where mm -hmm. everything happens in the gray area right but it's like how, how does an analytically minded team or a data team think about that gray area does that make sense and i hope that was a clear question i don't know word salad yeah more or less you're absolutely right that this does represent the gray area there aren't a whole lot of ethical issues that are black and white. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, I'm sure some are, but mostly <laughs> they actually cease to become ethical issues. If everyone agrees that something is uh, right or wrong, then there's not a whole lot of ethical debate uh, mm. to be had. You're right that, you know, you could look at it almost mathematically and say, essentially, I've got some function and I need to find the local maximum, right? Where I'm plugging in variables uh, to represent my actors in the system, the stakeholders, users, the planet, you know. One nice thing about that way of thinking is you have to consider, um, in the words of Henry Sidgwick, she said, Sidgwick, you have to consider the point of view of the universe, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. But you could essentially say, well, if I weight my happiness this much and the planet's happiness or the happiness we get from living in a healthy planet and environment, weighted as that, then you could say, essentially, it's some kind of function and my job is to tweak the parameters and maximize it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of that way of thinking because it becomes a bit overly analytical. And then, you know, you're always fudging numbers, right? 
Um, so for me, it's much more about recognizing the trade-offs, the compromises that, you know, if I choose to extract more value from the system, if I choose to try and squeeze more dollars and cents out of my customers, then there's a chance that might make them less happy, or it might reduce trust that people have in my organization, or it might reduce trust people have in the entire tech industry. And then you have to at least talk about those competing claims. I want to do this, you want to do this, it would disadvantage these people, but uh, help these people. And at least then you have the basis for that discussion to mm -hmm. happen. And that's the critical thing for me. Ethics is about discussion and it's about decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not about abstract theory. It's about evaluating, well, what are our options and what actually should we do? And that really only comes from taking these issues seriously and talking them through at you know, potentially quite some length with your, your peers and the, you know, the folks who can actually enable that change. Yeah. This, I talk sometimes about, you know, you may not be a, a title designer, but I, I encourage people who are makers and, and, you know, kind of the, the community that, that I'm really interested in helping out is this data science and analytics community. But if you're making products and making software and you're a maker, then the design, I think the design thing is about being intentional. And this, this feels like another area where a lot of this is about having the conversation and making intentional choices as opposed to just, oh, it's just where we landed and no one talked about it. And this mm -hmm. is how you fall into the ethics. Like you're a great person, <laughs> but you still participated in something that had a really negative outcome. And I, it, would you agree? It's a lot of it's about the intentionality of these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Intent isn't going to guarantee you the right, right outcome. You could still have all these conversations and still screw up. Of sure, course. sure. But I would hope it certainly reduces the chance of you getting it wrong. So much unethical design happens not through, not through you know intent to harm, just with no intent whatsoever, mm -hmm. just through negligence, just essentially through through careless or through at least just assumption that well we're the good guys, right? We're all good people. We're empathetic. We are analytical you know, and frankly, we're smart. So it's probably, we're probably doing the right thing anyway, right? And the chances of us, we're not evil people and so on. And that kind of complacency, I suppose, when it comes to ethics, that's often when you see companies and individuals make some of the most harmful choices. So yeah, being alert to those questions is the first step. And so that's what a lot of my work is, uh, or has been uh, until recently is essentially saying, well, here are the questions that you need to start asking yourselves if you're not asking them already, here's a primer and then here's a baseline and then we can take that forward and develop. Okay, once we've done that, how do we have proper arguments to evaluate these uh, trade-offs properly? Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about your your take on um, the concept of like using red teams, like on, you know, say you're, say you're producing your first machine learning model or you're, you're in an analytics group and, and you want to put some of this into play. I've, I've read about red teams having mm -hmm. like an ombudsman on, on projects, people you know that that are responsible to take in you know, complaints or, or or not complaints, but uh, concerns uh, mm -hmm. to an outside team. Are, are these? Do you see these as just different tool sets, or or and maybe go ahead and I'll, I'll let you expound on on mm. on these uh, different tools. That sort of uh, that sort of approach, I think, has a lot of value, and you see a lot of fairly similar concepts bundled up together. With this, you sometimes hear of what's called a designated dissenter. This is an idea I, I first came about in um, Eric Meyer and Sarah Wachtabacher's book, uh, Design for Real Life. And essentially, this is someone who role plays as someone who 
well, they're more or less a sort of constructive pain in the ass, right? In in the mm-hmm. product development process, and they throw in challenge to the team's assumptions. You know, why are you asking for this? What if I don't want to? Or what if I'm from a vulnerable group, for example? So there can be a lot of value in having someone act as not necessarily the antagonist, but someone just to you know lob in the occasional great grenade of defiance. And you see this, you know, you see this a lot in security. Security teams are already well trained to think about well, what could a bad actor do? Mm-hmm. in this situation? How might they twist this development for their good? So it's almost bringing that to other aspects of human-computer interaction, product design, product management, um, and so on. There is uh, still a potential limitation if you're just role-playing as someone who's challenging those assumptions. You may not be covering the right ones. So one thing I'm keen to get teams to do is to be broader in the, I suppose, in the input that they accept, right, is to reach out to people who are more likely to suffer from the harms of the decisions we take. And because technology is ultimately a very human thing, sadly, those people are often uh, from the most vulnerable sections of society already. You know, we might be amplifying harm onto those people. So we should be listening to them. We should be reaching out to them and saying, here's what we're working on. Here's is what we're considering, but can you foresee any challenges, any problems uh, in what we're doing? So this idea of participatory design, essentially, or participatory development of of products and systems, I think is a really important way to uh, not fully inoculate, but to uh, at least reduce the risk of us going off the rails. Can I pull in my uh, colleagues at my company, for example, if I'm I'm an employee or... Is that too native, even if they're in a different department? I'm sure it's a good start, right? Maybe it's not ideal, but in thinking, thinking in terms of kind of an MVP effort to get going with making, you know, putting mm-hmm. more of an ethical practice into place, is that, a, is that a good start? Walk down the hall and talk to the, the water, you know, at the water cooler, grab some people you don't ever work with, but you see them every day. As with a lot of things in ethics and, and in design, the answer is kind of it depends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. I would say most of the time that's probably going to be an okay step like it's 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 probably it's very likely better than nothing there is the chance that it's worse than nothing but probably a slim chance and i'd say that's mostly only going to be worse than nothing if you then say well job done right you know i am let's say although i don't want to make it just about certain sort of physical aspects but let's say i'm a you know a 30 year old white guy if you go and ask a bunch of other 30 year old white guys and then say well that's my ethical research complete um, you're probably missing a whole bunch. And so if it sort of forecloses on a deeper discussion, then that's where it might be harmful. But so long as you're mindful of trying to be a bit more open-minded and drawing in people with different personal contexts as well as different personal traits, then it might well be a first step. But what's the right step? You, you, sound, you sound hesitant. T- tell us what you, you think that, that you know, your starter recipe, you're just learning to bake bread. You're not going to get crazy with rye flour and whole wheat flour and, you know, double rises and all this kind of stuff. You're just going for simple bread to get going. So how do you, what's the recipe you start them out with? Well, so I'm a designer, as I say, by background. And so for me, the easiest point of leverage is critique sessions. Designers already have crit as part of their process. And that's kind of the closest a lot of organizations get mm-hmm. to talking about ethics because you, you know, sure, some of it's around, well, is this actually the right language or is this producing the right input? Is this button in the right place? But inevitably there's a conversation about, well, who is this even for anyway? Is this really what we should be making? 
Um, and that's pretty close to a lot of ethical discussions. So for designers, I tend to, I tend to lean that way. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to come across as too negative about, you know, just saying maybe this is an encouraging step. At least you're talking to other people in your organization saying, Hey, do you think this might cause some problems? But I guess my reticence comes from the fact that I think this industry is still very insular. And we have this infuriating habit of almost thinking that we're so smart that we can solve everything from first principles. And so what that means is when we see technological problems, I think we often think, and then we can solve those, right? These ethical problems, well, that's for us. So we'll just talk about it on ourselves and we'll, we'll get it fixed. And you, in the meantime, you've got you know, philosophers and sociologists and people in science and technology studies who've been studying these phenomena for literally decades, sort of on the sidelines shouting, you know, banging on the glass saying, why aren't you listening to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, by all means, we should be conducting our own you know, first principles work and, and talking among ourselves, but we should be learning from these people. There is a whole field that exists around ethical technology. And so in my work, I, I'm very careful to claim uh, as <laughs> sort of little <laughs> um, influence in that as, as I can. I say, well, these are the people you should be reading. Here are their ideas. And obviously I hope I've done those ideas justice. But getting out of the building, I think, is important, um, you know, both, both literally and cognitively, I suppose, you know, mentally getting outside the building as well. So that's why I'm sort of umming and ahhing a little bit. Yeah, sure. By all means, go, go down the hall and talk to a different team. But really, we need to be talking wider than that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make it black and white so that, you know, if, if someone's really, and again, thinking about someone who's on the side of the business where they're not, they're not necessarily a tech company. So their product is not software. So they, it mm-hmm. may be internal software or business intelligence or producing a, you know, a model that's going to change company workflow, right? Like it's mm-hmm. going to carry business processes they are going to change roles, jobs might change. And the intention is we don't want to do harm, but we're, that's not what our training, you know, it's people with advanced math degrees and, particle physics. I mean, it, it ranges the gamut, especially in the data science field. And mm-hmm. I, my, my general from talking to so many of these people is really good people. They mean to do well. They're mm-hmm. not trained in the liberal art side of things as well. And so mm-hmm. they don't know what they don't know. So, but they're eager to learn. So if I may, uh, proffer some advice to those people, I think uh-huh. the number one, uh, step of the number one realization that folks in that position need to come to is that data and technology are not neutral. And this is an old idea, but it's sort of been recently revived. I really like the framing from, I think it was Professor Jeffrey Bowker, who says that raw data is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as raw data. All data is steeped in, marinated in, uh, polluted by the social contexts that surround it. The um, the methods that data is collected, uh, analyzed, displayed, all contain at least the potential for, for biasing. So I think sometimes when I, I speak to folks in that domain, there is a belief in sort of the purity of data and the pu- purity of the analytics and the statistics mm-hmm. methods. But being conscious of the potential for bias to creep in, even into something that seems ideologically neutral, um, I think that's the really important first step. And once you've done that, then that sort of innate chance starts to build up and you say, well, how might I be causing damage or how might I be coming to the wrong conclusions? Um, once you get past that sort of ideological blocker, I think these conversations get a lot easier. Yeah, I, 
I like that you said that because I, I, I've kind of felt this thing too, where the, as you talked about kind of this purity of the data or, or let me step back for a second. I think there's a really talented people in the, in the data space actually understand bias really well. But when yeah. they think about bias, they're thinking more about how is it going to skew the, the insight from the data, not mm -hmm. the human impact. So it's like they already have some of the key principles in mind about bias, but yeah. not so much the human impact. They're thinking more of the business, not even so much the business impact, just about the scientific accuracy of the insight, I think tends to get prioritized over all else. And so maybe it's maybe it's just a more training on the the human out the element here is what they need to just dial that in or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, that that's obviously a trend now within a lot of data science. I think a lot of folks in that space are getting more uh, aware and more literate in these issues, mm -hmm. but we still have, you know, a long way to go. You still have, you know, the compass crime prediction algorithms, this famous example, that I'm sure your, your listeners are, are familiar with, which essentially took, you know, arrest data um, and conviction data and used that to predict uh, the risk of reoffense of, you know, of a suspect. Right. Um, and in, in retrospect, not terribly surprising that that was found to be biased, particularly against black defendants, because that training data, that, uh, you know, initial data is not, is not neutral. You know, it is encrusted with the bias of the social justice, uh, you know, the justice system of the police systems of the courts and so on. So it's the awareness that it's not necessarily just your algorithm may be biased, but your training data is is so uh, so much a product of history and thereby you know of humanity. Factoring that into your thinking, you know, really looking at all the possible contexts where that bias might occur, and then taking steps to reduce because you can never eliminate, I think, but reduce that bias all across the board. I think that's really important. Yeah. I I, I'm glad you said that because one thing I thought about when you know you read some of the the big headlines in this space and it's like, oh look what machine learning and AI has done and it's like, all that did is exposed what was already recorded in historical data, and it doesn't it doesn't mean like okay so we have a pass because it's it's already in the data so it's not like the model was bad, yeah and it's like no no no, no. <laughs> it says something about it but I I feel like something new popped up and I don't know if it's because because the technology is new, it it simply shines light on these biases more so than the data at rest. You know, it's harder mm -hmm. to see see it until you start applying it in this way. I don't know. Do you, is that yeah, perhaps. And and it's also tricky for the people who are doing this work because it's not your fault, right? right. That, you know, arrest data going back to the 1950s is racially encoded and racially biased. Right. But it's still your problem. Right. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah. And so that's one of the punishing things about working on ethics. You know, it's still your responsibility to address. You can't fix that, of course, yourself, but you still have to counter uh, to, to account for it within your system and to try to mitigate it. So it's it's hard and punishing and, you know, occasionally thankless work. But hey, this is what we signed up for, right? This is why we're hopefully sought after individuals because we've got the skills to try and tackle these problems. Sure. I mean, you just made me think of something else too, which is, you know, if you, if you are highly technical, then turn, turn that into a math problem. I, I don't, maybe there's a way that the model can compensate for the bias that's, uh, that's in the data. And, and that takes an ethical discussion to, to realize that there's bias in the data. Maybe there's some, something that can be done about that at, at the modeling phase to counter the, you know, kind of to move things forward ethically. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Kate Crawford, 
has a fantastic talk. I think it's called The, the Trouble with Bias or something like that. Mm-hmm. She outlines what she calls fairness forensics. And these are mostly statistical techniques to look at the quality of your data, to look for any gaps within it, um, to take statistical steps to then audit that data or test it with a, you know, a wide array, uh, array of input against you know, expected outcomes and things like that. So there are you know, technical mitigation strategies. Um, but of course, any technological intervention has the risk that it creates some unintended consequences of its own. So that's why you need also the discussion and the sort of the anticipation and, you know, all the, um, maybe the woollier or the more human side of ethics as well. You'd never want to just have a, a, a mathematical minimization approach to it. You need something a little bit uh, more well-rounded. Mm-hmm. I was on a webinar yesterday with a large analytics like advisory firm and they were kind of talking about their 2020, you know, outlook and and kind of trends and things to look at. And, and, you know, they had predicted that ethics was going to be big in 2019 and mm. in 2020, one of the things that I caught on there was that while ethics is, is important, I think there was even a statement that, well, it's, you know, every company doesn't necessarily need a chief ethics officer there, there aren't a ton of high profile examples of this and kind of like the news stories that we do see have made it sound like this is like a rampant issue all over the place. In reality, it's not been a huge problem so much. And again, this is probably talking more to the non-tech side, like this is more for internal business, you know, data products and, and business intelligence and things like this. Would you agree with that? I, I think you probably would not agree with, with that. <laughs> no, I would actually. I actually oh, okay. Would. Um, okay. I mean, there are obviously some sectors and some companies that will just, you know, inherently carry more ethical risk or threat than others. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're building models for uh, military drone targeting, then hell, you're you know, right. You'd better have your ethical game really sharp. You've got to be able to tell tell friend from foe. You've got to be able to tell uh, a pebble from a grenade. You know, all sorts of deeply important moral decisions rest on your shoulders mm-hmm. that probably don't if you're building models for uh, where to construct a warehouse, for example, for you know distribution or logistics or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, of course, that some people should bother and some shouldn't. <laughs> you know, I think every business has uh, almost a moral duty to take their, their, their consequences seriously. And they may, you know, have those conversations. They may do a bit of sort of ethical interrogation and conclude, you know what? I think we're in the clear. I think this is this is going to be, you know, if there is some harm we do, it's going to be so minor and we've mitigated it the best we can, then so so be it. And yeah, there's, in fact, I don't think many companies do need a chief ethics officer, but certainly, you know, there's military companies should and certainly your Googles and Facebooks and so on, given the scale that they operate. Yeah, it makes sense to have high profile and very, capable very skilled people uh in those conversations what i what i really i never like in ethics the idea of a one-size-fits-all strategy a sort of blanket prohibition or command saying you must do it this way or thou shalt never do it another way that for me is almost the opposite of ethics that sort of shuts down that discussion that i think is so important so i'm all for companies uh, and teams taking the approach that best suits their own circumstances mm-hmm. i'd like you to kind of close out with some uh, some kind of next steps. So if someone wanted to, to walk away here, it's like, I, I want to put some changes into my team. Again, thinking about someone working in analytics and, and, and data science here. Mm. I'd like you to think about those 
but before you answer that question, I, I'm curious what you think about some of the, the fact that the largest tech companies in the world actually have really large design organizations as well. And so mm-hmm. these design organizations sometimes publish guides, you know, on using new, the latest technology and, you know, trying to, here's how to do human-centered, you know, artificial intelligence if you're going to build AI mm-hmm. products. At the same time, they're also in the news for, <laughs> for high-profile mm-hmm. things. And, and it, I wonder if this is like, are these groups not talking to each other? Is it just a result of the scale of the company? Do you find it hypocritical? Like, what's your take on that? <laughs> Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it. I think it mostly is a factor of scale. You know, these companies are so big that they contain multitudes, um, and you'll have, yeah, a lot of a lot of organisations that will have. You know, maybe they're spun up an ethics team or an mm-hmm. ethics and AI team or whatever it might be, um, and then in another wing in another building in something like that, there's uh, a team who's you know, maybe a growth team or something like that who's talking right. about all the dark patterns and manipulative. Uh, interactions that they can put in the product possible to achieve their own targets. Now that team's job isn't directly, they're not, you know, intending to negate the work of the ethics team, but they will certainly be talking in different directions. I know it's frustrating for those, for those folks as well, right? I could imagine there's some, you know, designers not happy about certain things. It's just, <laughs> oh yeah. Why are we and doing you know, it this way? You know, I, I remember some of those times when I was an employee, you know, you're, you get yeah. frustrated with the business decisions, you know, it's wrong or you have a real strong aversion to certain choices and, you know, product management wins or, you know, whatever yeah. the business wins. And you talked about some of those in, in, in your own book. I, I recall mm. about this app scanner, you know, the company you were working with wanted to install a, you know, a, a listening, a listener basically on the phone to detect what other apps were installed and, and mm-hmm. backfired. And <laughs> it did, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, so, you know, I have firsthand experience of what it's like sure. to be in those, in those conversations. It is tricky. I yeah. mean, sometimes, you know, the company can try to exert a bit of a, you know, codification or you know, some sort of policy approach, like having, stronger core values um, that are actually adhered to across the organization or having you know, design principles or uh, Google, for example, have actually got some fairly strong principles around how they will build um, ethical AI. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that came out of the, the Maven debacle where they, they were building essentially Pentagon projects for drones. Um, and there was you know, mass rebellion among the ranks. And so someone said, well, we need to actually codify how do we take decisions about the projects we take on and those we don't, et cetera. So you can have a bit more sort of top-down standardization, I suppose, that reduces some of that, you know, left hand not talking to the right problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know what big companies are like. That, that's sort of, that's a cultural shift as much as anything else. And it takes a long time and it takes real top-down senior support. Yeah. Some companies get that and those are the ones that are making the change. Some companies say they get that but are really just paying lip service to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, to, we've been talking to Kenneth Bulls here, the author of Future Ethics and a, a product designer. It's been fun. This, you're actually the first product designer I've had on the show. So this has been oh, really? fun to, to nerd out with you. I don't even know, well, if I know what, what a dark pattern uh, is. And there's probably some some design nerd talk in here. But I'd like, to, I'd like you to leave us with like some actionable stuff that, you know, a, a data science analytics team or, you know, technical product manager could do. I, I'd like to summarize first those four, uh, those four areas you talked about, kind of the front page news test, the mm-hmm. asking ourselves, what if everyone did what I did? The, am I treating people as a means or an end? And from the, the utilitarianism school, am I maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people? So 
having those conversations like sounds like a really good start. Are there a couple other things people can can kind of walk out of here with? I would say early in your project, whatever your project may be, think broadly about stakeholders. You know, you open a lot of MBA textbooks and they say stakeholders are people who can affect what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Usually people in suits or in chinos or, you know, regulators, right. sometimes partners, you know, things like that. Don't forget there's a larger, usually a larger group of people um, who are also stakeholders, who are people who can be affected by our work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've trained ourselves to focus on user needs or the business needs that we overlook those folks so often. So get them into the conversation, as I was saying at the start, either by talking about them or ideally actually bringing some of them in to the conversation. So that's that's one of the most foundational uh, shifts that I think you can um, think you can do. And then the other axis that I think we need to enlarge or, or stretch our thinking in is the longer term implications of our decisions. It may well be that a decision is actually quite safe in a month, but becomes quite dangerous in five years time. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, Facebook, Facebook has the face data of 2.1 billion individuals. At the moment, facial recognition systems are still relatively expensive, but they won't be for long. So at some point, we'll probably have mobile devices that have full facial recognition capability on device. That completely changes the privacy threat factor and the privacy implications of having access to all of that kind of data. So we need to think about not just, is this a safe decision now, but what would it take for it to be unsafe in future? And is that our problem? And can we do something about that? Great. This is been such a good conversation. Thank you for for summarizing that. And obviously, uh, your book, future it's futureethics.com, correct, for the book? Uh, future-ethics.com. Future-ethics.com. Where else can people uh, follow you? Is LinkedIn, Twitter? Where do you hang out? Online? Well, I'm very easy to find because my name is spelled so unusually. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm at Kenneth on Twitter, at C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. That's where I'm probably most active. My website, Kenneth.com. My email address, you can probably guess. Um, so yeah, Google me. I'm fairly findable. Awesome. Well, this has been, Kenneth, it's been a really great conversation here. And I'm glad glad you shared uh, some of these insights with with my listeners. And it's it's been great to have you on Experiencing Data. Sure thing. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.